Yeah, so good morning, everyone. My name's Scott. Um, I studied with Michael back at Trinity. It was a great time. We had lots of fun. Um, uh, but yeah, a few things about myself first, just so you get to know who I am. Um, at the moment, I'm a full-time dad. Um, I, I often, um, I'm a member of Vic Park Presbyterian Church. Um, but I'm, yeah, full-time dad. I was in ministry, but my wife, who's here today with two of our gorgeous children, has chronic fatigue, so I've had to step back from ministry. Um, so now the main, my main role in, this li- in my life at the moment is to look after gorgeous children every day, um, which is a great joy. Um, but today my great joy is to bring God's word to you. Um, yeah, we're going to be looking at um, Philippians 3 today. It'd be great if you had that in front of you. Um, yeah, we're going to look at God's word. Um, today particularly we're going to be looking at getting a better understanding of the Christian life. Um, Paul has been using some super helpful illustrations in Philippians so far to help kind of describe what that's like. Um, he's described the, what Christians should be doing in this life as pressing on towards the goal. Michael's taken you through like last two weeks, the first part of chapter three. Um, and there, yeah, pressing on towards the goal. That brings to mind kind of a race, a journey, maybe a really long hike. Um, yeah, it's all very practical. That's what this Philippians is. It's uh, The end part is very, very practical. Um, you've been in Philippians now for a few months, but you're in the back half of the letter. And if you know much about Paul's letters, there's always the first half, which are phenomenal. They're just super rich in what Jesus has done, what Paul wants you to know. And then the back half is all about what to do now. In light of what Jesus has done, what should we do? So that's where Paul is going to take us today. And he wants to help you think through what does that mean? Because of what Jesus has done, how do you live that out? We're going to do a quick recap just of chapter 3 as a whole also. Um, So Paul, as we've kind of also had read, Paul has outlined that his righteousness, the start of chapter 3, his standing before God is not because of anything that he's done, No, nothing that he was born into or worked out by his own strength. No, rather, that's been really clear so far throughout the whole Bible. That is because of what Jesus has done, done and completed for him. That's verses 1 through to 9. You might remember that from two weeks ago. But then Paul shifts and states that this doesn't mean that he does nothing. It's really clear what Paul has stated what he wants to do. What Christ has done for him means now that his desires have changed and he wants to know Christ more. He wants to live for the one who died for him. And Paul is striving for perfection at that end. Paul has made it clear that he knows that he's received God's righteousness, God's perfection, what Jesus has accomplished. And Paul wants to live that out. He's striving to seek towards that. Um, we have received the perfection of Jesus. That's really, really clear. But Paul has also put that in context that though God has made him perfect in his sight, that's in regards to their relationship. Paul has made it really clear that his actions don't match that. He hasn't yet reached perfection. That's what he's striving towards. In his own life, he seeks to live that out confessing, ever striving to deal with and deal with sin, deal with the parts of his life that aren't right and that are sinful. Chapter 3 is about striving in his thoughts, words and deeds to be more like Christ, 
moving in that direction towards perfection, the righteousness that God has given him. And so we come to kind of our section, it's verses 15 through the end of the chapter. We're going to look at it in four points today. Um, because Paul calls us to four things. Firstly, Paul calls us to be mature. Secondly, to follow godly examples. Thirdly, Paul calls you to not follow the world. And then fourthly, Paul calls and reminds you to live out your citizenship. So the four points, they don't, they're not equal points. Some of them are larger than others, so don't freak out. Um, our first point, Paul calls us to be mature. Come see that with me, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if in some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let, only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Now Paul here isn't saying all that much different from what he said previously. But here Paul calls you to join him. Before it was all Paul explaining where his hope lies and what he's striving towards, but here Paul calls all Christians to join him to do the same. All Christians, note that with me in the wording. Look, all of us then who are mature should take a view of these things. And it's those who are mature who are going to act on that. But I shouldn't say that Paul isn't here taking a quick jab at those who aren't mature. Kind of like, come on guys, the mature are going to do these things. That's not, what, that's not Paul's attitude here. But this is Paul rather as a gentle father encouraging his children to be mature, to show them what does maturity look like and where should we be going, kind of what's the fundamental growth of a Christian. That's all great, but what's, called, what's Paul actually calling us to? What is this view of things that Paul is talking about? Well, again, we've read it in context. Paul hasn't changed angle. It's still the same thing. Continuing the train of thought from before, it's both knowing that you're not perfect, that you still have sin in your life, but that God has saved you and calls you to live that saved life, to strive towards that righteous life, towards being more like Jesus. That's what Christian maturity is about. It isn't that you can quote large parts of the Bible or that you have all the best books. Those are good things and they can help. But fundamentally, Christian maturity is in receiving the gospel, accepting that you're a sinner and need of God's help and then living that out every day. Have you understood and taken the view that the Christian life is one where we strive to follow Christ, where we work hard to do so, not because of we're earning salvation, and Paul's made that really clear in the earlier sections, but because it's what we have been saved for. Now, whether you've been a Christian this week, praise the Lord, or you've been so for a hundred years, there are two things this sentence calls us to. One of which, to know that in the Christian life, maturity is expected. It's the goal. If you haven't reached it, it's the goal that you start out and that you're going to live your whole life moving towards. It's sad enough when you come across adults in maybe in your working life or just around who are just immature. Their focus in this life is all wrong. That doesn't match their age. All the more so in the Christian life. But then there's a comfort and a warning, and we'll put these two together. There's the comfort and warning when you deal with sin, 
when you actually strive against it, when you bring it out into the light, when you confess and seek forgiveness and there's repentance, that can be really painful because you have to admit that actually you've stuffed up, stuffed up, that there's a problem and it's you and it's me. There's the comfort there that even when we deal with sin, that actually that's a good sign because that's the sign of Christ growing in us, that's us maturing, growing to become more like Christ. It's for our good, and that's beautiful. As much as I desire my children to deal with their childishness when they're adults, so God desires his children to deal with their immaturity and our sin, to constantly bring it out, confess and seek forgiveness. The other part of that, though, is the warning. And we'll deal with this a little bit more in detail later on. It's not just that if you're immature, but if you're fostering sin you're feeding it and holding it tight. This passage even here, but even more so, warns that that isn't a Christian attitude. Now, now all of us Christians who are mature, who are changed by Christ, should think this way. And see, if you don't, if you think of yourself not mature then, know that this is how you should be thinking. Christians know that we are sinful. Every day I wake up and my words and deeds, I fail our Lord and Saviour. I fail God and his law and standard. But I know that in this life I need to keep pressing on, keep confessing my sins and move towards the goal to become more like Christ. Is that what you want? Is that your desire? Maybe you've become complacent. Maybe you think there's a different way. But see what Paul responds with. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Before wrestling with this passage, I've kind of like skipped this verse in my head, not really understanding what it's referring to. Maybe I consider that maybe it's God saying that eventually he will guide us into all understanding or know all things. But no, clearly in context, that's not what it's saying. If you've been using it that way, I'm sorry. Um, It's actually better than that. Um, In light of what it says here, Paul says that the Christian the one who's been saved by faith and understands all that God has for them, we can't be complacent with our sin. You can't take that attitude with sin because that's the very opposite thing that Jesus has worked in us. Christians understand that we need to deal with sin. It's kind of the very core things to our lives because it's what Jesus has come to deal with. And so God won't let you live with it. His word everywhere speaks about sin and that it's rebellion against God. He's given us even physical pictures that you can hold and go through in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That point to the washing by Christ's blood and through Jesus' death we have redemption and grace. God will, even if we keep ignoring him, will bring the consequences of our sin to us to bring us back to him. If you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Because God wants us to live lives that actually reflect what we have obtained in Jesus. We have obtained Christ's own righteousness. That is who we are and that is what we should be striving to live out. Again, not to obtain righteousness because that's what we already have. Another illustration is when our leaders, those in government, 
or in other roles, when they don't live out that position that they've been given, when they don't do the job that we expect them to, or when they don't live the life that should go with that position, it's saddening. You're disappointed. They've been given the role and it's expected that they live that out. And so too with Christians. We can't do it perfectly, but we are expected to live it out. Again, just to make it clear, we've been given salvation. We've been given Christ's righteousness. Let us live out what we have already obtained. So that's our first point. Again, remember, they're not all equal. Um, Paul calls us to be mature, become more like Christ. But we don't have to do this alone. Because Paul instructs us, even commands us here in our passage, with something that can help us on this journey. Because we need examples to follow. That's our second point. Paul calls us to follow godly examples. Come see that with me, verse 17. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And we'll just stop there. It's worth saying that as an Australian, that just really grates against me kind of pushes against my culture that Paul seems to set himself up as an example that I should follow. Kind of puts himself above me. Kind of the Australian tall poppy syndrome kicks in and I just want Paul to kind of get a grip and to come down just with the rest of us. But that's, that's my sinful response. That's my sinful response. But also see, because Paul calls us not just to follow him because we can't see or follow Paul anymore because he's very much dead. But he calls us to follow those who also live as Paul does. Again, it's worth saying that Paul hasn't changed gears yet. This is still very much about being mature and dealing with sin, kind of following the upward call of Christ in our lives. But this is also a big picture about living the Christian life. In our life, Paul has given us example. Jesus has given us, God has given us examples to follow. Again, it's worth saying that actually here, Paul doesn't say to you guys, don't worry, just you and your Bible, you've got it. No, no, Paul says to all Christians to follow Christ-like role models. And that makes sense. The Christian life, Paul says, is a striving. It's a race, kind of like a mountain climb at times. And Paul here tells you clearly, don't go on that hike by yourself. Or don't even go on that hike with just a group of your friends who have all never gone on that hike before. Kind of a make-it-up-as-you-go kind of adventure. Now, that's, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Paul instructs you that you need to follow those who have gone on that path before you. Those that you can see have done the yards, fought the battles against sin, and are still following Jesus. Keep your eyes on them and see how they live and how they follow Jesus and do the same because you're not expected to do this by yourself. Follow those that you've seen showing maturity in areas of your life. Ask them, get mentored, bring them into your life or go into theirs because if you don't, you may not survive. But maybe at this point you want to respond, no Scott, you've got it wrong. God has me and so I can figure it out. God will protect me and help me get back on the right path. And I want to say, yes, you know, but God so often works through means, through his people, through the church, 
through the church's elders as they shepherd God's flock and show us and teach us and feed us. God has got you, but he's got you through the church. He's given you people that you can follow. Paul tells you to follow them and to keep your eyes on them. Don't do it by yourself. It's worth saying that there are also that people are better at some things more than others. This is just kind of like the let's get down to logistics kind of thing. It's okay to find multiple Christian mentors, not just like choose one person and stick with them. Um, I feel like I'm much better about thinking about how do I help my children to think about Jesus than I am about evangelism. Um, Even the mature, the mentors, need help and examples to follow in this life. As we strive together to living towards being more like Christ. There are difficulties in your life that I probably haven't faced, that Michael probably hasn't faced. And while I may be able to point you to Jesus and go, there's the answer, there are those that, sorry, I'm going to look at the right line. There are those who can also do that with their own personal experience and say, I've gone through that. I can point you to Jesus. And this is where we see him clearly. This verse then calls you, as you walk the Christian life, to be humble enough to admit that God and Paul know what you need to follow others and to seek and find those who you can learn from and follow. What do you think this church would look like if everyone here took the need to follow godly examples seriously? Would it not build a strong community? Would there not be no need to hide sin from each other because we all know that everyone is wrestling together and we're all striving to be more like Jesus. Would that not build just a really tight community where everyone that has insights, where people that have gone through struggles and succeeded, could share that with each other? Where the church would be humble and eager to grow and learn, to love Jesus more through even those hard times. Would that not transform your marriage? Would that not transform your families? That would grow Christians in this church. And it would be seen and known to be a place where Jesus is seen. But you do need to be careful. This is our third point. Because Paul calls us to not follow the world. There are many who are eager to lead. Sorry, just a moment. Come look with me, verse 18. For as I often told you before, and now tell you again with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Paul here mentions his tears. Why? Because these people are claiming to be Christian. 
Paul describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. But why? It's because when Christians continue to live in sin, when you don't deal with it, when they think that what Christ has achieved by his death and resurrection, it means that you can do whatever you want. It's making light of the cross of Christ. Because the cross was Christ coming in our place, taking the penalty for our sins. He took it all so that we don't have to. He dies and fates Christ's wrath for us because we can't. To then go and bask and delight in it. To delight in what caused him to die. To enjoy that. The very thing that he has saved us from. And to never turn from it. That's living as an enemy of the cross. An enemy of God. An enemy of salvation. Elsewhere in Hebrews it's described as crucifying Jesus again. No, they're not Christian. See the descriptions of me. They go to their destruction. They have God as their stomach. And they have their glory. And it's in their shame. They don't set their eyes on living the Christian life, on following godly examples. No, they have their mindset on earthly things. The things of here and now. And they're getting their fill. Maybe that's you now. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've just walked in wondering what on earth this is all about. But our passage is clear that if you don't turn from following your own desires, you don't turn from your sin, you don't turn to God who is so eager to forgive, then you're making yourself an enemy of the cross. Because Jesus has come and he's already paid the price for your sin. Come and be washed instead of all your sin and shame. Turn to the God who is so ready to forgive you and delights to welcome you in. Don't continue down that path. Maybe you're a Christian or you say that you are. You've been in church long enough that you kind of know all the right answers to say. You're good at answering Christian questions with Christian answers. But sin rules your life. You've got it all hidden, kind of out of sight. But if you were honest, you love them more than you love Jesus. Jesus feels so far away. But the temptation of sin is so loud and clear. Our passage calls to you then to see where that takes you. An enemy of the cross, destined for destruction, and shame is in your glory. Sorry, your glory is in your shame. We need to hear the call of the gospel to deal with sin. Kill it. I pray that the Spirit will convict you. Draw you in. Because as much as sin promises you, in the end it's all going to taste like ash in your mouth. And it provides no lasting comfort. But maybe you are a Christian. Mature, still learning, you hear these warnings and you know the temptation of this world is just so strong. 
You know you should be following Christian examples in your life, but the examples of the world are so often in your face. So loud. And the world seems to promise money, quick fixes to all your problems. And in all the advertising, they all just look so happy. And it's all so easy. Because it's easy to do nothing. So easy to fall into sin and to stop striving. But to bring in what we've seen before, don't walk that alone. Together we we follow Paul's example as he follows Christ. We follow together as we spur each other on to fight sin. Together we can confess our sins to one another and point each other to Christ. Our world calls us and seeks us to follow it, but we must resist together. Because it's hard. It's a long journey. Paul's described it as striving, running the race, because it is hard. Hard not just because the world is around us all the time, but also because I know that my heart isn't perfect. There's still sin in it. It has a new love in Christ, but yet there is corruption and the pull of the world is real and will be to the end. And that brings us to our last point. Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. So this is verses 22 to 21. I'm just going to read those for us. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies. They will be like his glorious body. Your citizenship is in heaven. We live in a world that's always calling you to do anything but strive towards godliness, to just stop. And then Paul contrasts that with the word but. He contrasts the world following its examples, its pattern, against the fact that your citizenship is in heaven. And the image of citizenship is about you behaving and living as you represent your country. As a citizenship of heaven, though now here on this earth, our actions should give away who we are. When someone gets off the plane off an overseas flight, if you kind of got to stalk them or like follow them closely, listen in on their conversations, watch their actions, you quickly narrow down where they're from. All the more so, I would say, at the hotel buffet, kind of what foods they choose, kind of what are they avoiding, it helps you know who they are. Because even though they're not in their home country, who they are shines through. Their heart is still home. And they, so they so often reflect in their actions and what, who they are really, the citizenship of their passport. And so Paul likewise says here, in contrast to those who have their mindset on earthly things, in contrast to the world, act like citizens of heaven. As Christians, this world isn't our home. The things of this world should not be our delight or our focus. Our love and our desire should be to live following the one who loved us so much and has saved us. Again, like Paul's large image is striving towards the goal, the upward call of Christ, the call of home, and see that it is answered. In the end of 20 through 21, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ 
who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. They're the images that though we live away from home, we still feel because of the corruption, because of the sin that still is in us, we know that we need a saviour. Yes, Jesus has saved me. He has taken away my sin, but I still fail. I still fall. I still feel the weight and taint of sin, and I need saving from that. The world needs saving from that. It needs to be put right, and it comes from Jesus our saviour. Paul here is describing when Jesus comes, when he returns, in one big action, Jesus comes in with the same power that enables him to put everything back right, everything back under his control as it should be, in right order again under him, that same power will transform our bodies to be like his. He deals with sin in the world and he deals with sin in us perfectly. Where I won't just be right spiritually with God, but completely, where the world is fixed and all the corruption and evil is finally gone, both in me and all creation. Paul points us to final victory here. All that's left is the joy of spending time with our God and enjoying him forever. Why does Paul take us here? Well, Paul wants to show you that the salvation of Jesus isn't just the starting point. The gospel isn't just the good news for you when you first become a Christian, but rather it's for the whole Christian life. The good news from beginning through to end. And too often I forget that. I forget the troubles and the temptations of this life. Sorry, I don't forget the troubles and temptations of this life. I forget that the troubles and the temptations of this life even the sin that weighs me down and burdens me, that they are just temporary. They end. But in the moment, temptations seem so endless. I lose sight of how good it will be when Jesus returns. Because I lose sight of that, that affects how I wrestle with sin. It affects how I think about Jesus, the gospel, salvation, because so often my view of it is just so small. Paul here points out and reminds us that my wrestling with sin, me following others as we follow Jesus, becoming more like him, and every time we resist or push back against the temptation of the world, that has eternal value in us. It's drawing us home. It reflects where we're going. Every time you wrestle with sin, even when it gets the upper hand and you fail, Our striving against it is a reflection that our home isn't here, but rather we have a heavenly home and a heavenly saviour who will end it all, will fix it all. And so when that temptation feels overwhelming and that pull of that world feels endless, know that it isn't eternal. It ends. Paul puts all of this here to encourage us to follow him to take that mature attitude, to continue to strive, following him together doing that, following other godly examples, constantly fight sin and doing so knowing that it isn't a hopeless or endless battle. But that in the end we do reach that goal. Christ comes and saves us and we are made like him. 
all the sin and hurt of this world is finally undone. We enjoy God forever. So Christian, keep striving. Don't stop. And so we ever look forward to that day. The Bible ends in Revelation with the whole church throughout all the centuries saying, come Lord Jesus. Amen.